Welcome to the Blinkist Podcast. I'm Ben Schumann-Stoller. If you're new to the Blinkist Podcast, the idea is that we're going deeper into the nonfiction book world. We're getting into the heads of the inspiring, the genius people who actually write those books. We're taking big ideas and making them personal. Today on the Blinkist Podcast, we have best-selling author, esteemed behavioral economist, and general all-around cool guy, Dan Ariely. If you have not seen his TED Talks or read one of his other books, like maybe uh, Predictably Irrational or The Upside of Irrationality, um, hopefully you heard that he has a new book called Payoff coming out shortly. So this was really cool. We had a chance to chat for about 30 minutes. Um, we talked about the kind of what behavioral e- economics actually is. And then we talked about some of my favorite things in Payoff, especially, for example, why we don't always think, we don't always make long-term decisions correctly. We often just think about the short-term interest. So before we get into that interview, I just want to say, if you do like what you hear today, Pass it on to someone else who would like it. We'd really appreciate that. Leave us a, a review, a rating. Got to do it for the for the websites, man. Got to give them what they want. All right, let's roll the tape. I will catch you guys in the outro. Enjoy. Thanks for coming on to the Blinkist podcast. Nice of you to make the time. My pleasure. Nice to nice to be here. So I um, a lot of people are really excited when they heard that I was going to talk to you. You have a lot of fans in Berlin, I guess. And the the interesting thing was not that many people, though, really understood or understand what behavioral economics actually is. So I was wondering if we could like, everyone's kind of like, everyone's like, oh, he's that guy who has that like TED talk or didn't he wear a shirt with his name on it? And uh-huh. <laughs> well, I'll ask you about By that By the way, what, that, that one, the, the one with the shirt, I, I always, um, do you know the story about this? No, let's start there, actually. That's good. What What is the deal with this shirt with your name on it? <laughs> yeah, so it's actually a long story. I'll try to make it short. But I gave a talk at a women's magazine called Harper's Bazaar. And it was the first time I was exposed kind of to the fashion world. And it was it was just fascinating. I don't know how much you know about fashion, but when you talk to like a fashion expert, like the editor of that magazine, and they tell you all the nuances and so on, and we were sitting there in the cafeteria of that building and she analyzed every woman who was coming off the escalator in terms of her clothes and so on. Anyway, it was just fascinating. I finished the talk and they gave me this big Prada bag. Mm-hmm. And, you know, an overnight bag, like big black leather with a big Prada sign on the side. And it's the first fashion item I've ever owned. And I walk around the streets of New York and I ask myself, do I show Prada to the outside world or do I show it to the in- just Just turn the bag around the Prada sign is against my leg and nobody can know that I'm having a Prada bag. Well, I decided to have it just me so nobody else know I have a Prada bag. But nevertheless, I felt different. Mm-hmm. And, and I was kind of asking myself, you know, you know, when we think about fashion in general, we think about what's called external signaling, that we use fashion to communicate to the world who we are. I drive a BMW, I drive an Audi, I drive a Subaru, I uh, work. Calvin Klein, I I do something like this, right? But I thought, you know, here I was walking with the Prada bag and nobody else knew what I was doing, but I felt differently about it. Mm. And I thought, you know, what if I was wearing Ferrari underwear? What if it was something like completely private, nobody knew, would I still feel different? And I I felt yes. So we decided to run an experiment. So uh, we wrote on people's shirts, the word stingy or the word generous, 
and we send them to run around campus for a few hours. And when they came in, we said, okay, we, you finished the task, but before you finish it, we have one more thing to do. Don't take your shirt off. And we gave them some tasks that gave them the chance to be either generous or stingy. And what we saw was that people with, who were generous were generous, people who were stingy were stingy, um, as you might expect. Mm. But what we also had in the experiment, we had half the people wearing the shirts with the print on the inside. So they were kind of in the Ferrari underwear condition. Nobody else knew that they were wearing this. Mm-hmm. And we said, what if people knew, but they were the only one that knew, and the effect was actually slightly bigger for them. So, so that suggests to me that the effect of internal signaling of what we learn about ourselves and how we think about ourselves when it comes to fashion is substantial, maybe even bigger than the effect of signaling to other people who we are. Now, all that is a story about the research. The shirt has two sides as well. The shirt I got from the PhD student uh, who did her project. This was her one of her research papers. And she gave me a shirt as a, as a thank you. On one side, it has my name. On the other side, it says something really nice about me. So <laughs> I, decided, I decided to wear it with my name and have the, the thing that is really nice, the real nice compliment she wrote about me on the inside. And you won't say what that compliment is? I'm not going to say. Okay. It's, it's, uh, it, it makes me feel uh, nice and warm. And actually, it's nice that she thought about me this way. But it's a little too arrogant to say. Okay. So, <laughs> so that's kind of a cool experiment to, to go into the question of kind of in the basic what idea of what is, what is behavioral economics. Yeah. So, but by the way, if you think about this story, uh, this story, it's unclear. It's about behavioral economics. It's just about kind of trying to understand human nature. Mm-hmm. It's about living our lives and just kind of observing the kind of things that we do with a slight sense of uh, puzzlement and asking why, why do we do that, right? Even looking at how do we drink coffee or uh, how we wear fashionable items and then asking questions about what do we know about this and what don't we know about this and, and then doing experiments. And from that perspective, I don't care if people think about this as behavioral economics or not. It's just about kind of a study of trying kind of to figure out who we are. Mm-hmm. But, but in terms of behavioral economics, I, I would say that the kind of two versions of behavioral economics that I, of the definition that I care about. The first one is just the opposition to standard economics, right? So in standard economics, people have preferences, they know their preferences, they act on these preferences, they make good decisions, they don't have emotion, they think about the future in the same way they think about the present, and, and so on and so forth. And, and I care about that definition because both companies and more importantly, governments have adopted that definition of human behavior. And because of that, we, we use that definition to design different things. I'll just give you one example. Think about something like the death penalty, right? So in the US, we have some states that have the death penalty and some states that don't. And, and the theory is that people will have like a big punishment uh, the death penalty is a huge punishment. And they will say, oh my goodness, I don't want to commit that crime. Mm-hmm. And, and the logic is to say, let's create such a big punishment that people would think in advance about it, and then they would not commit the crime. So something like you come home at night, you're pissed off with your significant other, uh, you go to the kitchen, you take out a big knife, and then you say to yourself, oh, I forgot, we have death penalty right. in this country. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's do something different instead. <laughs> Now, if you think about this, here's a policy that we kill people every year 
in the name of that policy with the theory that it would deter crime. But there's no evidence for that. When, when they look at the crime rate of states that have the death penalty and states that don't, there's just no difference. Mm-hmm. right? So, so this is like an example, it's an extreme example, but it's one example of saying, if we have the wrong theory of what drives human behavior, and then we create policies based on that, we're likely to create wrong policies. The, the second definition I care about for behavior economics is not about policy, but it's about our individual behaviors. So imagine that you try to kind of predict what drives your behavior. If there are things that you don't understand that drive your behavior, but in fact they do, then you might get into trouble. You might make mistakes. You might be vulnerable. You might not do things in, the best, in your best interest. And, and I want to basically reduce, reduce mistakes. So I guess, I guess this is maybe the, the central theme for me is I'm trying to use social science as a way to make our lives slightly better. And both in terms of how policymakers think about it and also how we think about this as individuals and trying to figure out what we can do to, to improve things. Sometimes a lot, sometimes a little, but even a little is good. So, okay, so that's great. Is that how everybody sees behavioral economics? Is that like a the two sides of behavioral economics or are there no, many other I, ways I, to kind of think about it? There are many other ways to, to think about this. Uh, so, so you know, I think that the, the standard one is the one about policy, right? right? Because economics is such a is a is such an interesting discipline from the perspective that it took on like a public goods perspective of saying, you know, how do we think about welfare of society and how do we optimize it and therefore how do we create mm-hmm. institution and so on? Sadly, it's just a partial perspective, so it doesn't tell you the answer. But but the move has been very important. The the second part about saying, you know, I care about the place where individuals make mistakes. That's uh, that I think is more more me. Yeah. And then there's another kind of popular view, which is basically kind of applied social science, where standard economic theory you can think about it as applied theoretical framework, right? So you can take something in game theory that has no application, and then you can also think about how it applies to I don't know designing tax system or optimizing something or another. And the behavioral economics perspective is saying, you know what, let's do, so that's kind of a third definition Mm -hmm. that says, let's just not just rely on economics. Let's take all social science into account when we come to create policies. Uh, Economics is one perspective, but let's also take psychology, sociology, anthropology, philosophy, you name it, medicine, and let's just uh, be more inclusive and let's be experimental. And and that's that's kind of another important uh, part of it is that in economics, in standard economics, you assume that just by theoretically analyzing something, you will have the answer. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the rest of social science, you say, we just don't know, and we have to run some experiments to figure out what's right and what's wrong and what's exactly going on here. So, so economics, because of the level of generalizability is so high, mm-hmm. and it's very easy for economists to say, I know the answer, right? All incentives are just the same. All situations are just the same. All people are just the same. Therefore, I can just tell you the answer. Whereas psychologists, for example, have much more nuances. And they said not all people are the same. Not all incentives are the same. So we don't know exactly what it is, but we can tell you what experiments to run to try and improve the situation or to figure out what's going on and then suggest some improvement. Right. So, okay, we're going to 
take a quick break to hear what's going on in the office. But then when we come back, we will talk a little bit more about the specifics in the book in Payoff, in the new book. Ciao, sono Jessica e mi occupo del, del reparto di performance marketing e attualmente sto leggendo Il rogo di Berlino di Helga Schneider. My name is Therese. Um, I work with PR events and outreach at Blinkist and I'm currently or almost always reading several books at the same time. Um, right now I'm changing between Anna Karenina, which takes forever, that's why I have to read other books as well. Um, and alongside that I'm reading Siddhartha by Hermann Hesse in German to practice my German and also Promiscuities by Naomi Wolf about coming of age and sexuality in 1970s California. Okay, welcome back. Um, I'm here with Dan Ariely. We talked a little bit sort of broadly about what behavioral economics is, the various definitions out there, why um, you like it, I think you hinted at. Um, and so now I think I'd really like to talk about this book, Payoff, this new one. Is When does it come out exactly? It's coming out on November 15th. Okay. So possibly by the time this comes out, I think by the time this comes out, people will already have it. And I had a I I had a chance to read it over the weekend. I don't I guess I kind of want to get into the into the details of it. Like this concept of the time scale shows up in it a lot. Um, what I mean is you can't judge motivation based on how you feel right now. For example, you have to look a little longer on the time scale. Um, can you talk a little about, about this time scale idea and and why it, why it plays such a big part in this book? Yeah, so first of all, I think it's very nice that you observe that the time scale is such such a, a big important part that comes, comes through it because I never say it explicitly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that the, the real notion is that we, from a time scale perspective, is that when we think usually about a motivation, it's mostly like a tit for tat approach. You do X, I do Y, and so on. Mm-hmm. But the problem with that with that approach is that it leaves a lot of things out, right? So teach for that. You pay me, I do X. So I do X, you pay me, and it's it's a it's a short term contract, and all the rewards are within this short term. But if you think about the really large thing that motivate people, you think about scientists uh, working in the lab for years. You think about startups uh, being successful, uh, you look at meaningful relationships, either friendships or marriages or parenting. Uh, you, you look at lots of the things and they don't necessarily have a tit-for-tat relationship at the moment and they do have a very different timescale for them. So, so if we look at motivation in terms of here is what you do and what I do within the same hour, within the same day, in a short time frame, you might miss a lot of the a lot of the picture. The same thing goes for marriages, right? If you mm-hmm. if you took marriage as an example, and you say, let me just look at what's going on there on a daily basis, it will not give you a good a good picture of what the marriage is all about, how solid the relationship is, how much people are willing to do for each other, and so on. Um, by the way, uh, you know, just talking about marriages, I, I haven't seen my uh, wife and kids for a while. <laughs> I've been I've been traveling like like mad, but but you know, it is. It is interesting if I think about my wife and kids and how long they haven't seen me, and you know, hopefully they still they still miss me. But <laughs> but it is it is a different um, kind of recognition of what what is a role in the world, what is our relationships, what are we willing to do, what are we willing to sacrifice. 
And it's clearly not something that, that we can do on a day-to-day basis. And you know, I, I, one of the stories I tell in this, in this book is a story about the woman I met who decided to be a single parent together with her uh, gay neighbor. Do you remember that story? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And she basically had this idea that she was going to revolutionize marriages because she said, you know, most marriages end up in divorce or, you know, about half. Why don't we start being divorced? She said we, and she told me that she and her next door neighbor were kind of in a perfect position. She, she was there. He was next, next to her. They had two apartments. You know, the odds that they will continue like this were high. Uh, plus, she said she will have the kid three or four days a week. He would have the kid three or four days a week. They would be able to be single for the rest of the time. They would be able to sleep half the week. I mean, the whole thing sounded to her perfect. And then they went to a lawyer. And, and this is not, you know, a lawyer's joke, or this is not something, say something <laughs> bad about lawyers. But, but the lawyer started bringing up all kinds of low probability events. So the lawyer said, what if one of you wants to move to a different town for a better job? You know, and all of a sudden, they start having a discussion about this. Anyway, that lawyer brought up lots of scenarios like this, and they started debating those things very passionately, so passionately that they, this was uh, four years ago, they haven't talked since. Right. Um, so, but, but I think it's kind, of, it's kind of a good representation of the issue, right? If you thought about two people having a kid together for convenience reasons, uh, but, but don't tie their futures together, uh, what kind of sacrifices are they willing to make? Versus if you are tying your future together and you say, you know, we're planning to be together for 40 years, whether it ends up working out or not, but we're planning on this to work out, the level of give and take and sacrifice and willing to adjust and so on is, is much, much higher. And, and that I think is why, why when you look at motivation, like deep motivation, it's so important to have, to look into different time frames because if you don't, you'll just get the, the wrong picture of mm. what's going on. Yeah, the one, the, um, the other study I wanted to talk about with the time scale and motivation is this intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic motivation in the moment versus thinking about it before, right? Yeah. And yeah. That, that comes up in the book, for example, regarding going to the gym. No? That's it's, right. It's, exactly. li- it's like, uh, well, you should explain it in case I get something wrong. <laughs> no, no. Why don't, you, why don't you try? Let's see. Um, well, I try to do like the one sentence, you know, recap, which is basically... Since, since I clearly can't make one sentence, <laughs> let's, let's see if you can do it. Well, I try to, I think about it like um, the, the benefit that you get while working out and in the moment of working out, even if you're in physical pain. You are you're you're happy and you you feel motivated. You feel like you would go back. That's you feel this intrinsic motivation of the of the like genuine pleasure um, of pushing yourself of of physical exertion. Whereas beforehand, what you're actually thinking about is just finishing the workout, being done, having gone, maybe even telling somebody, "Oh, I went to the gym for the third day in a row" or something. Or and you don't think about the physical pain that you're going to have to go through or the challenges. You're just sort of motivated by the external effects of, for example, telling somebody or... Um... That's right. Yeah, I think, I think it's great. So, so if you think about some kind of a, a, an experience and you say something like smell, you know, smell is one of those things that we don't have a good language for. When we experience smell, either good or terrible, it's incredibly powerful, but we don't truly have a good memory for smell. If you're in a, 
you know, in a clean room environment, you can't, mm-hmm. you can't really imagine the smell in, in all of its intensity. You can say yourself, you can say some words like flower, but you can't really experience it. And the idea is that when you think about something like exercising, you think about it in a very cold, calculated way. How long will it take? Or it will be a pain, it will hurt, and so on. But the moment you're in it, not everything, but lots of things have a kind of a joy, like the smell, mm-hmm. that you can't predict in advance. And uh, because of that, you know, the, the difficult thing with exercising is starting to exercise. Right. Right? If we could all start from minute four, <laughs> life would be much better. <laughs> We, we actually did a study, we, we didn't write it up yet, but uh, maybe we'll talk about it another day. We, we did a study trying to ritualize uh, putting uh, your uh, trainers on, your gym shoes mm-hmm. on. And, and the idea was that you know, when you start running, it's just miserable. But what if we could get something before you start running to be pleasurable? So we, we ritualize things by giving people instructions of what to say as they put their sneakers on. And to say things like, I'm taking care of my body and soul I, for my, the, the purpose of my health and, and my well-being. You know, kind of people said something kind of, you know, like new age, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit aloud to themselves as they were putting their sneakers on. And we said, you know, why, why is the first moment of exercising has to be so painful? Why can't we make the pre-exercise a little bit better? And therefore, people might put their sneakers on. And if they put their sneakers on, they'll probably continue exercising. <laughs> and, and indeed, we got people to exercise uh, by about one time a week more mm-hmm. with, with this approach. Uh, another kind of uh, interesting thing was this approach worked better. So on average, it was one time a week. But it worked better for people who were not religious and worked a little bit less for people who were religious. And I think, I think it's because for the non-religious people, they were willing to accept the ritual mm-hmm. to a higher degree. But for the religious people, it just seemed to be like kind of a non, like what is this nonsense? Like God is not, you know, kind of, there was no religion in this ritual and they were much more used to religious rituals. But, but anyway, we're going to continue uh, working on this, this notion of how do we ritualize behavior? And, you know, talking about uh, timescales, Mm-hmm. Rituals are also rituals and religion are also very important to think about time scale. So imagine something like recycling. If you wake up every morning and think to yourself, should I recycle today or not? It's every decision is just one decision, and every time you consider it only as one decision. But if you say to yourself that recycling is something that good people do, hmm. and it's part of your daily routine and you connect it to what you think nature and God and whatever it is, then you don't ask yourself the question every day. And if you violate it, you're not just offending that day, you're offending the whole principle. Right. Right. So there is something about rituals and particularly religious rituals that define ourselves that basically make each daily action into a part of a much bigger collection and therefore making it much more powerful. Man. That would have been a good one to end on, but I have I have to ask you one more, which is I'm I'm always interested when I talk to um, academics, maybe because I I sometimes pine to get back into academia. Who knows? But I'm always curious about like okay, let's say there's a parallel universe where you get to, you know, don't worry about like coursework or how many hours you have to teach or whatever promo tour you have to do for the book or whatever research you have to write up, but like you can do one study 
limitless funds, limitless time, limitless help, um, perfect conditions, whatever. What's that one study that you would that you're like dying to work on, or the one thing that you would like to look deeper into? Okay, so that's a that's a great uh, question. Probably to give you a good answer, I need like a couple of days to <laughs> to, to think about it. Um, but but I will tell you my my initial answer. So you know, I study a lot of uh, conflicts of interest, mm-hmm. and I study about how how corrosive conflicts of interest are, and how how difficult they are and how they basically destroy the system without people people knowing. So think about banking, things about politics and so on. I think if you would give me the funds, what I would try to do is I would try to open a financial institution with no conflicts of interest. So, so I think I know, I know how to do it. And I want to see uh, the, the, the study or the experiment will be whether if we open a bank with no corruption, no conflicts of interest, straight salaries, no bonuses. I mean, uh, you know, all kinds of things in terms of reducing conflicts of interest, whether people would abandon their current banks, whether people would understand the benefit of dealing with an institution with no conflicts of interest and, um, and switch. And the second part of the study will be to see whether uh, other financial institutions will, would look at it and change their own behavior. Hmm. So it's kind of a, you know, it's an expensive experiment. I think you need a lot of money to start to start a bank. But, you know, we can study lots of things in the lab in terms of conflicts of interest. Mm-hmm. But, but to truly make an impact in the world, I think we kind of need to create some, some, some examples of how the world could work with either no or very little conflicts of interest. Okay, well... Then we're gonna have to leave that as like a as like a cliffhanger for the next book or the next. Uh, hopefully, we can do this again. The next conversation because I'd love to go into it, but I don't want to take up too much of your time. And um, it's been a really good like twenty five minutes. So so thanks so much for doing this. My pleasure. Uh, really nice talking to you, and I hope we'll get to do it again. Thanks for listening to the Blinkist podcast. This episode was produced by me. Ben Schumann-Solar, and Ben Jackson, who uses computers sonically. He's never seen a computer screen. Feel free to email me at podcast at Blinkist.com if there's someone you want to hear in here, or if you have any feedback about me, the podcast, or Blinkist magazine. We'll be taking a short break into the New Year's, but we have some really cool special podcasts um, we put together that are coming out in the next months. Um, hopefully even a 2016 sampler podcast in the works too. So in the meantime, be good. This is Ben checking out. Thank you.